everybody. We're going to get started in just a minute. Um, welcome to this session. Hope you guys are having a great day. Uh, Robert Smith just told me that this is how geeky he is. Just a little secret. He just told me that, yeah, I'm making fun of him, uh, that he has listened to every, thir every Third Coast Festival session online. Every single one. Filled up my iPod with him. Filled up his iPod. I think we should just all buy bow down. No. <laughs> um, he really needs no introduction if you've done any listening at all. Planet Money stuff, NPR stuff, funny, beautifully written, great. Um, I just don't have much more to say than that, to that, um, other than I'm supposed to corral everybody and get it started on time. So I will leave you to the master, Robert Smith. Thank you so much. Now, to be clear, I didn't listen to all the sessions at once. Like, it, 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 took, it, took, it took a good year to get through them. But, um, but I was saying that because I have never gotten to come here before. And I've missed it every year, sometimes for good reasons, like having children, sometimes for bad reasons, like Hurricane Katrina. There just was always, or presidential elections, there was just always some reason not to come. And um, when they asked me to do something on deadline radio, I was like, yes, I have many opinions about that. Um, but you will have to forgive me um, because for most of my career, I worked at member stations or general assignment in New York and LA, worked in Salt Lake City and Seattle and Portland at member stations, and was on daily deadlines all the time. Now, now I'm with Planet Money, so I do have more time, sometimes you know, a week, two weeks, to do really in-depth interviews, and then just surf the internet for a long time and finish it all in the last eight hours. So it's kind of still, it's kind of still a deadline job, except, except it's, it is actually a problem because I am falling back on a lot of bad habits that I beat out of myself when I was doing deadline radio. So now I will do something that I tell people who are new in radio never to do, which is do a lot of long interviews, not quite sure I'm gonna use them, just sort of fishing for things, going back, transcribing them all, and then sitting down at my desk with a pile of transcripts going, I don't know, what? should I start with this? Should I start with that? Like this is, this is what I have told people, this is what I've told myself, never put yourself in that situation. Now, if, if seriously, if you're gonna do deadline radio, if you're gonna do something, turn it around in two hours, three hours, eight hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, you don't have time to do that. I mean, ideally, we have these two parts of our personalities. We have the collection part, where everything's interesting, and I just wanna know about this, and show me that, and you collect, 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 and then it's, it's like you hit the apogee, is it the apogee? Where the top is? Hit the top, and then you, and then you go, no, 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 I'm going to cut back. And then you hit the editing phase. I'm going to call back. I'm going to use this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to... The problem is, with, with Deadline Radio, you don't have the time to do that. And so you actually have to do both at the exact same time. You have to be writing and editing not only as you're gathering, but before you start to gather. Before you do anything, you're already cutting down your ideas in the first few minutes after you get a deadline. But I, I wanted to ask first is, how many people here actually have to turn things around in a day or two? All right. And how many just want that job? <laughs> yeah, none of the people who have that job want that job. Um, and I understand because, listen, it, it's a huge problem. 
deadline radio because it can be it can be incredibly boring. Um, you don't have enough time. You don't. You can't fit in the things you want. All these dreams you have of setting up parabolic mics in the trees and <laughs> following the seasons, doing it without narration. Um, like those those dreams. Those dreams are dashed, and um, and you end up with a lot of the stuff that's on radio right now um, because they've turned around in one day. What happens is. The stories, they don't have a lot of things we talk about here. They don't have characters. They don't have action because you're all in one place. They're static in a way. A lot of the stories you hear happen in just one place. You're at a press conference. You're at an event. You're at a funeral. Whatever it is, you're stuck there. And so all of the things that make radio listenable, all that momentum, I like to say, it's not going to unplay in front of you. Sometimes it does. And in fact, if you ever wonder about this, you should go to Kelly McEver's session tomorrow. I went to it this morning. She's a war correspondent, um, Middle East correspondent for NPR. She sees amazing things. And in fact, she has a different set of problems, which is how do you take something so amazing, so moving, and translate it into radio that people can accept? I have the opposite problem, which is how do you take things that are incredibly dull and static and boring and create that sense of momentum? So the stuff I want to talk about today has, is all generally done within eight hours or so, it's all, I tried to pick things that were fairly boring topics, press conferences, medical conferences, um, politics, all sorts of politics stuff. But I, I wanted to quickly play, because I'm, I've been collecting spots, new spots, 45 seconds. I wanted to quickly play how a couple of other people have, have dealt with this problem in, in a very short, short, short period of time. And spots are generally turned around in an hour or two, 45 seconds long. So. You can start to see people pushing back against this static sense of news. So the, the first one's from Tamara Keith. She's a business reporter for us. Uh, her monthly job is to do the jobs numbers. You know, they, they come out, and she has to report on a number, which is just the worst, right? It's just like a number. And then you talk to an economist and says, well, it's not just a number. It's many numbers. And you're like, oh, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. You have made it worse. The one thing it had going for it was that it was just a number. Um, so she said, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. What I'm going to do, because all the news can be handled in the lead. So she's just going to make it into a little story. So this is 45 seconds, just a very little story that came out uh, earlier this year after the unemployment rate had dropped. Annika Trotter had been out of work for four months when she got the call. A security company where she had applied for a job wanted her to come in for an interview. So she ironed her power dress and went over possible interview questions in her mind. And despite some butterflies, she says she aced it. I got the job. Insert long sigh of relief. Being unemployed had taken a financial and emotional toll on her young family. I'm so glad to have work to look forward to again. For Trotter and thousands of others, February was a good month. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Washington. I love the newscast. Like, it's just a, it's just a little bit of newscast, but there, here's what I love about it. It's an actual story in, in the story sense. Very short, very minimal, but there's a little bit of action there. Did you, did you hear what the great action is? She ironed, she ironed her power dress. She, like, totally useless for information, but that's... That's like the key moment there. And then there's a little bit of surprise. You know, she gets the job, you hear her reaction. Her reaction isn't happy. Like that's not the sound of a happy woman. 
that is the sound of a woman who dodged a bullet. Like she is relieved. And so it's a little, it's just a little tiny thing, but it's a little tiny surprise, quick turnaround. And the way she did this, this is gonna be a mantra here for me today, she planned ahead. She had the names of people, you know, she put out a call for people, she had their iPhones, they had them download our iPhone app so we can do interviews that sound good. And she was ready for it. I'm gonna play another quick spot. This is from Andrea Seabrook, who may or may not be here. She's here at the conference. She would kill me if I didn't say visitor Kickstarter. She's starting a great new program about politics. But uh, before that, she was our congressional correspondent. And she had a bit of luck here. This is another little spot, turned around quickly. But also, she did this with a storyteller's ear. The Chinese dissident who recently fled house arrest spoke with members of the U.S. Congress today by telephone. NPR's Andrea Seabrook reports. New Jersey Republican Chris Smith was holding an emergency session of the Congressional Executive Commission on China when the subject of the hearing, political dissident Chung Wang Chung, was reached by phone. We just had a, an interesting and, and I think, enlightening conversation, but we're going to put him on uh, the speaker. A hearing witness held an iPhone up to the podium mic and translated, I want to uh, meet uh, with the Secretary Clinton. I uh, hope uh, I can get more help from her. I also want to thank her face to face. Chen Guangcheng is now seeking refuge in the United States. Andrea Seabrook, NPR News, Washington. Now, she obviously lucked out something good happened in a congressional hearing, which never happens. But I give her credit because she put in, now once again, 45 seconds, she has nothing. Listen to this part. This part the right Chinese here, dissident right who recently fled right house. Dissident Chung Wang Chung was reached by phone. This part. We just had a, an interesting and, and I think uh, enlightening conversation, but we're going to put him on uh, the speaker. A hearing. Now that's, there's no information whatsoever in that. Like that is pure storytelling. And what Andrea did here, 45 seconds she has. And she took, what was that, eight seconds of it? just for a pure storytelling maneuver, which was to hold off the news a little bit. Just like, just to provide a little bit of anticipation. Something's about to happen. This guy's like the phone. I'm gonna move it up. I'm gonna move it up to the microphone. Didn't need it at all. It's just a pure little storytelling thing. So we're all trying to do this with spots and, um, and sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. Uh, this was one that I did on a deadline that was, um, it was rejected because it was too mean, <laughs> or so they said. But I'm, I'm still trying to get on the air. The monthly employment figures tell us the cities with the highest unemployment rates. No jobs in Reno, Chico, Fresno, Carson City, Pueblo, Central, Modesto, Atlantic City, Stockton, Dalton, Lakeland, Bernardino, Medford, Bedford, Rockford, Sacramento, Tampa, Yuma, Yuba, Coeur d'Alene, Flint, Bend, Sparks, employment pain. Now I know what you're thinking. Enough with the bad news. Where should I move to get a job? There are plenty of places in the U.S. with unemployment rates below 7%. Look to the Upper Plains and to college towns. Lots of work in Lincoln, Logan, Lawrence, Rapid City, Austin, Abilene, Oshkosh, Iowa City, Grand Forks, Bismarck, Fargo, Minneapolis, Sioux Falls, Midland, Portsmouth, Manhattan, Kansas, Lubbock, Ann Arbor, College Station, Washington, Homa, Billings, Madison, having fun. Robert Smith, NPR News, New York. There's not a reason for me to actually play that, except I'm going to make sure everyone in the United States hears this. <laughs> conference by conference by conference. <laughs> and, until, but, but this does actually apply, because 
this is this is gimmicky, and um, and I haven't given up on it because sometimes you have an idea for a gimmick, you have an idea for something that will liven up a piece, and you just haven't done it right. You just don't know where it is. They heard this and they're like, but what if it makes people sad in Yuma? And I'm like, they're already sad. Like, they have really high unemployment rates. Like, I'm sorry, um, I don't think this is gonna make people who have lost their jobs any more sad. But anyway, so I, I do this as a preface to say that, that those of us, those of us within NPR, there is, uh, there is sort of a counterforce uh, mounting where a lot of us are saying, even even with very strict deadlines and very tight, tight lengths in some of these new spots, we're just trying, we're trying to put a little bit of flair, a little bit of action, a little bit of creativity into deadline reporting. So the question now is how to do it. You know, I said you have to start writing almost immediately. And so I'm gonna do, I'm gonna talk about sort of three quick things. They're not that quick. I should just say that. Um, we, always, we always lie to you. Uh, I'm going to talk about the structure of a deadline piece, and then I'm going to talk about how you can sort of fantasize the tape you need in a deadline piece, and then a little bit about the field, about how to make it happen when, when time is really pressing against you. So the, the first thing that I do, like the first moment I get an assignment, I basically pick a structure for that story. This is no research. No tape, have no idea even where I'm gonna go. But the first thing I do is I need some sort of way to think about this story. And so the most basic way, the most basic structure there is, is I just draw three circles. This is, we're talking about for three and a half, four, four and a half minute piece. I draw three circles. And I say, I need to put something in all of those circles. Now, the important thing here is not the number of circles, it's not whatever theory you have of narrative or, or that sort of thing. The important thing is you need to start narrowing down your options. You have a tight deadline. The three-part structure works really well because, first of all, it's the magic of threes, right? It's, comedy's built on threes. Uh, music's built with sort of three sections, uh, three-act structure. But the other thing is that three is sort of the minimum to, to have a pattern and break it up. You know, and, and when I say three, I, I don't mean like, oh, there's the beginning, the middle, and the end, right? Every piece has a beginning, middle, and the end. Th these are three distinct things that I put into. So sometimes it would be, let's say I'm just coming to a press conference. It would be, well, no, I want to have a scene. I don't want to start at the mic. I want to have a scene beforehand. Maybe I talk to the people beforehand. Maybe I talk, get a story coming up to the press conference. Then I have the press conference section, and then I have something afterwards. Maybe I take it to the street. I talk to people who are impacted by it. That's sort of a, a chronological three-part structure. Um, sometimes it's three actual places. I try and move through time. I'm gonna test this out here. I'm gonna test this out here. I'm gonna test this out here. Sometimes, and Andrea Seabrook does this a lot, um, did this a lot when she covered Congress. There are three distinct intellectual sections. I'm gonna talk to the Democrats. Now I'm gonna go across the aisle. I'm gonna talk to the Republicans. And then I'm gonna do a third section on what's about to happen. And, and it seems a little bit weird to, to talk about this before you even know what your story is. But it allows you, when you think about it, each section's a minute, minute 15, it allows you to just sort of say like, what, what am I gonna do? What is my movement in this piece? Now, if you're covering a plane crash, or you're covering a war, or you're covering a natural disaster, you don't need a structure. Like, it, the action happened, a lot of it's before your, before your very eyes, in some cases. So this is when 
the story's starting to seem static. So I'll play you a quick, a quick example of this one, and I'll walk you through why I needed this. This is um, from the, the funeral of James Brown in, in Harlem. And it was happening in the afternoon, and All Things Considered said, well, we'd like you to go, and we'd like you to do a two-way from there. And I said, no, nah, you can't. I mean, you don't want me just standing in Harlem going, oh, people are very sad. Um, James Brown's in there playing music. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, it's lifeless, right? So I said, I want, I want to do a piece. I want to do a piece. I want to do a piece. And they're like, sure, 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 that's fine. And then I did the math. This is the sort of the second thing after you pick a structure, you got to do the math. So All Things Considered goes on at 5 o'clock, which means I need to feed the elements from New York City by 4 o'clock, which means I need to voice by 3.30, which means I need to edit, very quick edit, at 3 o'clock, which means I need to start writing at least by, at least by 2 o'clock. Hour to write, half hour to edit, something like that. The problem was all the, the actual speeches and stuff were happening later in the afternoon. Um, James, Brown body, James Brown's body was scheduled to get there at like 12.30. So basically I wanted to turn around a feature in four hours. So the first thing I did was I said, okay, I'll do it this way. My three-part structure is this. I'll go a little bit early. I'll get people gathering, talking about James Brown. Number two, I will um, have James Brown's body arrive and I will go in there with somebody and I'll see the body, you know? So that's a good section. And then afterwards, I don't know, I'll get someone to reflect on James Brown. So I'm, 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 I'm literally like filling in these three, you know, these three parts, saying what, what would work in each of these? And it narrows down my options. Now I know I need four or five people Vox at the beginning. I need to go inside, I need this, so da, da, da. Well, long story short, um, James Brown was late for his own funeral. Um, <laughs> Should have known. You know, he was trying, it was like a horse-drawn carriage coming through the city, so. So, um, so I wasn't able to go inside, but I'll play you just, um, this, is, this is sort of partway through the piece. I've done a little vox with people out in, the, out in the neighborhood. And you can hear the three parts. It seemed like everyone in Harlem stopped by just to take a look. People were dancing, selling t-shirts and James Brown bootlegs. Asafi Kendall got up on her boyfriend's shoulders to take in the scene. Pandemonium, it's a whole lot of people out there. Baby, I'm gonna be late for school trying to see James Brown. And then the godfather of soul himself showed up. James Brown! James Brown! The crowd went nuts as the casket was carried into the theater and onto the stage. That's right! About an hour later, the first people in line started to come out the back of the theater. Now quiet, reverent, Carney Bragg says he walked by the casket of James Brown and was in awe. He has a blue outfit on. His hair looks beautiful as always. And he looks very good. I'm a funeral director, so I know. He looks very good. So he looked like he was going to put on a show. That's right. Well, what was the feeling in there? Out front, there's sort of a party going on. Inside? It's very quiet. No one's saying anything. Bragg says he was reminded of late nights listening to James Brown's Live at the Apollo album and singing along, please, please don't go. Please. Robert Smith, NPR News, New York. I, I think the piece turned out pretty well, considering the fact that I didn't get to see the body. I didn't get anyone inside. Like, I didn't get any of the, the things that were going to be the meat of the story. And the thing that made it work is the structure was already there. Like, I knew what I needed. And 
what I needed was not necessarily anything in particular. I didn't need somebody telling me James Brown is great. I didn't need somebody going, I'm, you know, I'm, we're walking by the casket. Although, believe me, that would have been awesome. But what you needed in this piece was, it's essentially a Vox piece, it's just a bunch of people talking. And you needed not to be in one place for the entire piece. You needed some momentum. You needed something to happen in the piece. Now, what happens in the piece is it moves through time. You're out front, you're talking to people. Casket arrives, talking to people after they come at the back. And by the way, that was the first guy that walked out the back. I ran around the back of the theater, just waited for the first person, asked him two questions, and then got on the subway, wrote on the subway on the way back. That's what you gotta do when you got a deadline. But it moves through those things, but it also moves through space. I mean, it moves through space. You know, you're, you're talking to people in the street, you're closer to the Apollo Theater, you're in the back of the Apollo Theater. It moves through time, through the hour and a half, but also moves emotionally. There's people having this party out front, and then there's just this sort of anticipation when the body's coming in, and then there's this quietness, which I actually remark on in the tape, out back. And so even though, even though there's no real action on the tape, there is a sense that you have gone someplace in a short period of time, in a short feature. And that's all really you want, is to, is to make people feel like they've been through something with you. And once again, very quick, if there had been more time, there would have been a lot of other things to do. Um, but, um, but I think it really helps to have, to have that structure, to just pick one. And I'm gonna pause for a moment, because this is usually when a journalism professor wants to tell me that I shouldn't make assumptions about stories before I actually show up. Anybody? Anybody want to play that role? Let's ask a dumb question. So tell, explain to me, like, you're there anyway. Why can't you go in and see the body? Um, because they weren't letting press in at the very beginning. So they, they, were, they, they said, we're going to bring the press in, and so they put us all on a pen. Like, they literally penned us in. And they said, oh, you can't go because, you know, it's just family members first, and it's, you know, they got to go, and we got to set up. And the time's ticking. And, 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 this is, and this is where having a structure ahead of time forces you to get things that you wouldn't otherwise. Now, if I hadn't thought this out beforehand, I would have left because I got to get on the air, right? You got to make tough decisions. But I would have left having everyone excited. James Brown walks in the building, Robert Smith, NPR news. Like, there's not, it, it would have been fine. We do that stuff all the time. But it wouldn't have had a conclusion. It wouldn't have felt, it wouldn't have felt like you got somewhere. Um, so yeah, that's why I didn't go inside. But does anyone want to, come on, fight me, yeah. Fight me. Because if you pre-planned it, then you... Oh, you're not selling it. Come on. <laughs> right. Uh, because then you have pre-guessed what the news is. You're not open to what the news really is. Uh, you, you're just... You're, you know, you're fake. <laughs> if a fight breaks out. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, this is exactly the problem. And we should just say it right out, which is... You have very little time. You are making assumptions in the story. And you always do about focus. If a fire breaks out, yeah, you're probably going to cover the fire. You know, plane crashes the next block, you'll probably set aside the funeral and do something on that. I, I consider it sort of a hypothesis. You know, it is something I think is going to happen. And you're constantly testing it. Like, for instance, we had this huge debate about this piece because I was headed up there and I was picking out music for it. And Margot Adler, fantastic reporter with me in New York. She walks by and I said, what do you think about this music? I said, my idea is to use this 
opening riff from the beginning of the Live at the Apollo album, and it turns out the end music was from the end of the album, so it had sort of an album narrative, but no one knows that. But, but I'm like, I want, I, you know, I'm about to go down there, I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna use this music. And Margo's like, that's awfully celebratory music. What if they're really sad? I'm like, oh, no, they're not gonna be sad. Like, it's Harlem, like, it's gonna be a party. I, and she's like, no, it's not gonna be a party. And we're going back and forth about whether I've made a bad assumption. And at the beginning of the tape, when I'm doing a Vox Pop, talking to people, you hear me on tape go, you know, a lot of people might have thought that this would be a sad occasion. And the person's like, no way, you know, we're celebrating the life of James Brown. And I'm like, in your face, Margo. <laughs> but um, Margo, really, Margo really disagrees with me. Like, she is totally, um, she says that she has no preconceptions. She walks in these things. She does deadline stories just like I do. Um, I personally think she's been doing it for 35 years, and she doesn't have to think about it my way. I, I, I swear she's got internal structures that just make those pieces come together. I need to write down three big circles. Yeah. Um, in the writing, I'm curious about the balance between clips and writing, because I noticed at the end you actually summarized something that he said in your conclusion as opposed to using a clip, an edited clip of that. Tell me about that decision. Yeah, I'm not, it's funny, I, I was thinking about that as I, I listened back, and I'm not entirely sure, I'm not entirely sure whether I stepped on it or he didn't say it well enough. Whatever it was, I, I do remember that the cut of tape just wasn't, it just wasn't working at the end. Once again, I had very little time. So, you know, like, no, I'll just say it. Like, I want, I, you know, I don't want this focus to be on this guy trying to explain. I don't know whether he couldn't remember it or there, there, was, there was something, but whatever it was, I'm like, no, I'm just gonna explain it. Um, but I want to, oh yeah, go, go. I have a question about your voice, and you seem to be speaking like pretty fast um, in the piece. Totally understandable, but fast. Is that like okay because it's news and because you did it fast? Like I feel like my editor would want me to slow down. Your editor wants you to slow down. Um, I don't know. I, 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 just, I, 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 didn't, I didn't hear that. Maybe it is fast. I do speak fast in general. Um, but I, I will put it this way. Um, one of the advantages that we have going for us when you're covering deadline stories is that people kind of know what's going on. I mean, basically there's only five or six forms of these stories. So it's not, they're in some ways easier to follow than some of the stuff I do for Planet Money where I do speak slower because I'm trying to say, well, what the central bank does is it doesn't just print the money. You know, it buys these things. You're, you're trying to explain it. Whereas, yeah, it's a street party, it's a funeral. There's, there's just a sense of you can kind of get it. Um, um, but yeah, I think it I think it varies depending on the material. Now, I'm gonna play I'm gonna play a little bit of another piece because this is another example of a very, very tight deadline. This is when uh, Mitt Romney officially announced his candidacy for presidency um, in uh, Stratum, New Hampshire. And it was another one of these crazy deadlines. It was uh, he was gonna do it at one o'clock. Uh, ATC wanted it. And so I ended up filing from a, um, everything you hear is done in a McDonald's mm -hmm. down the road. Um, but in order to do this, I was, I was flying in. Sometimes, sometimes you, you know, sometimes three, you know, the three parts don't cut it. You have to come up with another structure. So I'm flying in and I'm thinking, this is the worst assignment ever. Because he's been running for president forever, right? It's not, you know, at least since the previous election. And I'm covering the official announcement and so it's one of those things where it's official, he's running for president, and I was so, I was so upset on the plane, and I went, 
I got it. I have very little time to do this, and I'm bitter. So I am going to write an intro that sounds like this. The Republican frontrunner for president announced today in perhaps the least surprising political news of the week that he's actually running. Mitt Romney, the former Massachusetts governor, finally made it official at a farm in New Hampshire. Given that today's announcement has long been expected, we challenged NPR's Robert Smith to find at least seven surprising things about it. Which is a total lie, because they didn't really challenge me. I mean, I made them, I guess I made them challenge me. But, but, the, but the interesting thing about this is it turned the story's weakness, which is it's not surprising in any way, into a little bit of a game. It's a challenge, right? Um, and it made it incredibly easy because I walked in there with, um, with my reporter's notebook and just numbers. And I went, all I have to do now is fill in the gaps. Now, I hadn't decided whether it was going to be five or seven. I wanted it to be a prime number because for some reason that works better. Um, either five or seven. Six is deadly if you're doing a list for some reason. Um, no, this is, no they, they know this from magazine covers, right? Eleven's like perfect. Um, <laughs> I don't know why, but um, so I wrote down and then I just, I literally did my story by just filling in until I had the numbers I needed. And then when I went to write it in the McDonald's, um, it was the easiest thing in the world because the transitions were almost written for you. I want to do it somewhat cleverly, but I'll play you a little bit of the beginning. I won't make you go through all seven, uh, but just the beginning and the end. Okay, surprise number one. There are still New Hampshireites that are undecided about Mitt Romney which is strange because he basically never stopped running for president after the 2008 election. He's been in New Hampshire frequently over the last four years, but still voters here tromped across farm fields and stratum to see the man once again. Frank Boodleman still isn't sure. I heard what he had to say the last time he ran for president, and um, it wasn't anything surprising. If he doesn't get a little angrier, uh, if he doesn't get a little more passionate, he's not gonna, he's not gonna get ahead of Barack Obama. As if on cue, who should come wandering through the crowd? But surprise number two, the new, improved, casual Mitt Romney. Boy, what a scene this is. Doesn't get better than this, does it? Hi, how are you? Good. Of course, he wasn't going to wear a jacket and a tie to a working farm. But for those of us who covered the last election, it is jarring to see him without it. In 2008, Romney always looked like the hedge fund Ken doll. But people said he was too plastic, too phony, too inauthentic. So now, Mitt Romney has officially unbuttoned his top button, and he works the crowd with a little more personality. How are you? Who's this beautiful woman you're with? Oh, we're not together. Oh. <laughs> every, I got to say about Mitt Romney, every time, like, he, he, like, guesses wrong. He's like, oh, short haircut, Navy? Nope, Air Force. You're like, okay. Um, so there is actual content in this piece, which I will now skip. Because uh, surprises three, four, and five. Okay, three, four, and five are from his speech, where he talks about. He says nice things about uh, Barack Obama. I picked that as one. Um, he decides to bring up the health care plan in Massachusetts. That was another surprise for me. Just anything, anything that I thought met the bar of surprising. And then, so that's kind of, I guess, section number two. And then, at the end, I wanted to to be a little bit more playful and wrap up the uh, and wrap up the surprise theme. Romney ended with the news that everyone already knew, that he was running for president. And then, we're not sure why, but uh, his campaign blasted a song about passionate lovin', Rock Me Baby All Night Long.
That is surprise number six. And also surprise number seven, if you count the chili. Everyone in the crowd got a bowl of Ann Romney's famous chili. Very healthy chicken, white beans, not too spicy. And speaking of the fire in the belly, how did our voter, Frank Boodleman, find the new and improved Romney? I heard what I expected, but no more. No less. I'll tell you what. I will vote for whoever can defeat the man who's in there now. I don't know who that is yet. A skeptical New Hampshire voter? No big surprise. Robert Smith, NPR News, Stratum, New Hampshire. So, um, extremely, extremely quick turnaround, made very easy by having a structure. You know, I mean, there's some there's some fine writing in there, but but once you, <laughs> if I do say so myself, uh, I'm allowed to be objective after about six months. Um, but but no, it's mostly it's mostly at this point like you're along for the ride. Like it's the tone. You know, you want to follow through in the tone. You want to hear all these sort of things. Now, the um, I will say since we're talking sort of in general about deadlines, um, Rick Boonelman was a, pretty much the only guy I spoke to. Like you have very little time, and you you have to make these really really tough decisions. Because I would like to speak to a lot of people, right? But um, you learn to sort of scan crowds. Um, he was, I won't say he's yelling at his wife, but he was proclaiming loudly to his wife, and I'm just like, you, like you, you're the guy. I interviewed him, he was good. I'm like, done, done. And so I stood next to him so I would have him at the end because I knew I wanted both sides because that's just what you do with political, with political reporting. You have the guy at the beginning and the end. And, um, and there you go, there was no time there was no time wasted. In fact, well, I did, did, I did record a bunch of stuff about the chili and people tasting the chili, but that, that didn't get into it. Um, so I wanted to play just quickly um, two more very short things about structure. This ended up being more about structure than I, I planned. But I, I think it's really important to do this work before you go out. Like, it, it really makes the difference. And one of the things that, that I'm impressed is when people can take events that, you know, comparatively, James Brown funeral and announcement, right? There's music, there's chili, there's at least something to talk about. But sometimes you have nothing. Like you have a press conference or a photo op or the guy who's supposed to speak that you sign up to do a spot about like doesn't show up or doesn't speak, which is the case in this next one. This is from um, Bob Moon of Marketplace. And it's, um, you can't use this trick too many times, but it's, uh, it's super clever. When a public relations agency told us to show up at a West Side gas station at noon today, if we wanted to meet the president of Russia, how could we resist? And sure enough, a navy blue limousine pulls up and outsteps Vladimir Putin. What was he doing there? He must not have needed gas. The limo stopped in the driveway. He was quickly ushered inside, and we pressed our noses to the window. I think he went to the men's room. Not the men's room, really. That photographer was just joking. Actually, the Russian leader was grabbing coffee and a donut. He's got a Krispy Kreme donut. He's got a Krispy Kreme donut. New York Senator Charles Schumer confirmed it. When I showed the president of Russia a Krispy Kreme donut, and he ate it and said it was good, that was one of the uh, more surreal moments uh, that I've had in politics. Who could doubt that? But let's get down to business. Putin was really there helping launch 1,300 new Luke Oil gasoline stations, which a Russian oil firm bought from Getty Petroleum. Putin didn't speak, but Schumer was more than happy to offer his thanks. New oil from Russia, he says, can only help give OPEC a run for the money. At a gas station in New York, I'm Bob Moon for Marketplace. Now, that's a piece that is all structure, <laughs> because at the end of the day, this guy didn't talk. Like, you went down there expecting, if you're going to see the president, 
of Russia is going to say something. Didn't happen. But the nice thing about this is by holding off the news to the end, um, he can set up this mystery structure, you know, which is he's the reporter in search of an answer. Now, you obviously, every time you go on a story, you can't be like, I don't know. Two candidates are debating. Why is that? Who are they? <laughs> What's going on? Um, and yet I, I say that knowing that that's basically the structure of, of every Planet Money episode. Um, <laughs> the, difference is, the difference is you do have to have some genuine puzzlement. You can't throw puzzlement where there's, there's really none. Like, and, 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 you know, Bob, Bob really, like, did, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if he was going to speak. They didn't know quite what was happening, which is why he actually taped the Krispy Kreme donut part, right? Like, who's taping their fellow reporters? But once you realize the story you're in, he realized pretty immediately that this story is going to be about this weird scene and this, this you know, there's a little bit about politics and oil, but mostly it's just how bizarre the whole thing is. Um, so, and, in, and at Planet Money, we do have genuine questions. I mean, our, our stuff on economics really starts with, like, you know, what is money? Like, really? What? We don't know, and we're going to go and figure this out, or, or why gold and not this, or, or how, does, you know, how does the central bank work? Those are sincere questions that we pose up, and we use that as a structure. It's the reporter searching for an answer. You know, in some ways, it's, it's, a, um, it's not ideal to always have your reporter be your, your central character. But sometimes when you're dealing with ideas, sometimes when you don't have other characters, when you're on deadline, that's what you have to do. Um, I want to play one more, and this is from uh, Gregory Warner. It's kind of cheating because he won an award for this piece. Um, and I'm sure it's because of this particular thing. And I'm going to spoil the ending of this little clip. Gregory Warner went to a medical billing conference. Gregory Warner found a guy at a doctor at the medical billing conference, and he asked him, well, what's up with medical billing? You know, why are you here? Why are you doing this sort of thing, right? Now, what, I'm, what I love about this is the way I would have done this, especially in a short period of time, is I would have done medical billing conference. It sounds crazy boring, and it sort of is, but there's really an important thing happening here. And you know, you'd have a little fun with it, and then you'd talk to somebody and say, no, no, I'm learning this. You could picture a very good story where you're walking through the conference. In fact, you almost started, did you almost do that story? Um, yeah, we've got to do that story. <laughs> so what, what Gregory does is he talks to this doctor at this conference, but he doesn't mention the conference. Listen to this. Larry Raybon is a urologist in Florence, South Carolina. And like every doctor, he charges by procedure. Taking out a tumor, there's a code for that. Using a special scope to do it, that's a different code. If the patient's obese, the surgery's harder, that's another code. If the surgery wasn't scheduled or there was a post-operative infection, you get the idea. There's a code for these things, and so that's huge amounts of funds that were just sitting on the table that were not being charged for. Two years ago, Larry Raybon decided to do things differently. He was going to find every code that he was missing and bill for that. To take on this task, he assembled a very loyal team. And here they are. Dr. Raybon is my husband and my boss. Geneva Raybon, head nurse, and her daughter. My name is Lauren. I'm in billing. And son-in-law. I'm the office manager. And another daughter. Yeah, my name is Rainy Raybon. Well, my business has developed into a family affair. And a family vacation for the Raybons means packing up the Suburban and driving down to Orlando, Florida. Not to Disney World, but to a hotel right across the street from Disney to attend the annual billing and coding conference known as Coding Con. 
How's everybody doing? You had fun last night? Uh, and I don't just say it because he's in the room, but this, this was a brilliant choice because he knew where the story was and what the conference meant. The conference isn't the, isn't the beginning of the story. The conference is the end of the story. And you realize a conference sounds boring, right? But the way he's written it here is it's almost like Joseph Campbell, hero's journey kind of thing. Like seriously, you have a hero-esque hero um, who has a problem. You know, he gathers his allies. He goes on a journey to a magical place. And, you know, whether you consider it the Death Star or, you know, the Emerald City, whatever it is, he gets there, and it's this billing conference. So you also have the joke to it. But, but, I, but this opened my eyes, and, and I can't wait to steal it um, for a deadline story, because, because it, 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 it tells you, I mean, it sort of, it sort of builds up, you know, it, it, it puts it in its proper place in the story. And you would think about it, which is if somebody came to cover this conference, yeah, it's a fun conference. There's lots of stuff happening. But it's the stories, like a conference is a collection of people who really care about something, who have a long, complicated story about how they got there. But I never thought of a conference that way. Just like you don't think of press conferences as really the culmination of a whole set of processes, a whole set of things that, you know, whether the law was passed or a discovery was made or, or all of those sort of things. And so what I hope to use and what I, what I learned from this is that you can you can hold off what you think is the news thing you're doing. You can hold that off, um, or in the case of you know, the announcement story I did, push it off to the side. Um, there's a piece I sometimes play here. Um, I'll play a little bit here. This is, this is a tiny little bit from Wade Goodwin. He's covering um, this official ceremony where these soldiers come back from Afghanistan. And, um, and he said there were you know, like two hours of speeches and stuff. Listen, this is awesome, how he handles the speeches. Left turn, halt. Battalion colors are uncased and unfurled. Speeches are given, all a big tease, really. Finally, the order of charge is given, and chaos ensues. Newlywed brides throw themselves into their soldiers' arms, legs wrapped around waists, noses buried in necks. Speeches are given, it's all a big tease. Like, I love that. Like, the confidence to say, and this was another quick turnaround story, the confidence to say the thing you've come to cover, the thing that everyone else is miking and in the malt box, that's not the news. You can say it happened. But he sets up this story also in a three-part format. He goes beforehand. He talks to the people excited for the, the soldiers. He has this moment where they all come together. And then he talks to them afterwards after they're reun reunited, right? That's the important stuff. But anyone else... Anyone else, maybe with a little less confidence, would be like, well, I, you know, I should put the, I mean, the general was there. The general was talking, you know, at least the general at least saying nice things. You don't need the general. You don't need it all. You can dismiss it totally. Um, I want to take some questions about structure before I talk about uh, the role of fantasy, since we're talking about the Death Star and that sort of thing. You mentioned that you had at least five or six, or no, that there were only about five or six Oh, I totally made that up. There are five or six. I mean, no, I mean, you have a, you have a three and a half, you have a three and a half, four minute story. So, 
Um, you could do a three-part structure. You could do, you know, you could maybe put four parts. Uh, you could do it chronologically. You can start and go back in time. I mean, there's, there's, all sorts of, there's all sorts of ways to do it, and they get more and more complicated the more time you have. So it's, I, I really am not a person who thinks that there's some magical structure out there, you know. Um, I, I use, um, it's embarrassing, not embarrassing. Uh, I use uh, Dan Harmon from Community, you know him? The TV show Community? No, 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 he's the guy who created the show. And every, every episode of the, the show Community is built on an eight-part eight story embryo structure. Oh, look, they think I'm crazy. And I carry it around with me in my pocket. This is like a little uh, eight points. It's basically kind of a Joseph Campbell-esque myth thing, you know, people on a journey searching for stuff, that sort of thing. But he, he bases every episode around these. And I saw an article in Wired about him, and I printed it out because I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. But it doesn't, it's kind of brilliant, but it also doesn't really matter. He picked a structure so that he can free himself to think about a comedy program, you know? Just like I picked a three-part structure just so I can free myself to not worry about that one thing, you know? Um, let me, any other structure questions? Amy. Oh, I don't know if this is exactly a structure question, but I noticed the distinct lack of phone tape in what you've been playing. I was going to ask that. And you were covering, in every case, something that was happening and you were where it was happening. And so much of what Daily Reports do, at least at Marketplace, is something happens somewhere else and we're doing a spot about it and using oftentimes phone tape. And I wondered if you had any either favorite examples of an effective story you've done or others have done or thoughts about how to make that work in, in a similar way. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think whether I have um, any of the ones right here. Um, um, the advantage of being in New York City is you can just go to a lot of things, as you well know. <laughs> you can just go to people. Um, there's uh, uh, Steve Henn, uh, NPR's Steve Henn, recently Marketplace's Steve Henn. He just did one that was, that was rather brilliant on this, which was uh, he, wanted to, he wanted to have a Vox Pop section for something on Apple. And so he, he, he had a bunch of people, NPR, send out tweets that just said, oh, you know, record a comment on your voice memo on your iPhone and email it to me. He had a special boxed email on it. But, but people did their own Vox from around the country. He turned this around in like an hour. He's like, it was crazy. You know, he just, he, he, had, a, he had a provocative question. I forget what it was. I think it was, actually, I think it was, um, did Apple buy Instagram? Somebody bought Instagram. Yeah. Who did? Facebook bought Instagram. I think, I think that's what it was. And so he just wanted comments from Instagram users. And the memo function on an iPhone sounds pretty good. And the files are manageable. You can email them. He, he cut them together, you know. Um, Trying to think other phone things that I do. I mean, I do a lot of stuff in studio now. And one of the things, and I'll get to this, but one of the things I do when I'm on the phone is I usually, I usually try and plan some sort of um, the word shtick keeps coming into my mind, but I know that sounds bad. But no, I, I, I try and plan some sort of interaction, some sort of moment that can happen on the phone or, you know, an ISDN link up. So, for instance, I just did a piece on, um, for um, Planet Money on, on Oreos in China and, and the way in which they had reformulated Oreos in China. And so I knew, I knew that I was going to walk through the constituent parts of an Oreo uh, with uh, this woman um, who had helped develop them. But I, I also knew I had this moment. I, I'm, I'm writing it as I go along. So one of the lines I was writing in my head was, um, 
think about a normal Oreo cookie. And I just knew, I'm like, she's gonna hate the word normal. Like that's, cause you know, they're an international organization. Like calling the American cookie, this is, this is, this is a good segue cause this is about fantasy. You start to play out what's gonna happen, your first cut of tape. So I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I called it a normal Oreo? And she said, no, 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 you mean the American Oreo. And um, that's pretty much the way it happened. You know, I was, I was like writing the top of the piece because I thought that was funny. But, but what, I didn't put, what I didn't put in was I had a planned response, which was, um, uh, tell me about the normal Oreo cookie. And she goes, oh, we call it the American Oreo cookie. And I say, oh, I'm sorry, that's racist. And like, <laughs> like or sorry, I'm racist. Or, but whatever it was, it was like, my editor's like, do you, you really want to make a joke about racism in an Oreo cookie story? And I'm like, no, no, I don't. I don't want to do that. But, but, it's, a, but it's a good example because it shows how, it, it shows how fantasy can often go awry. But sometimes it works really nicely. Another example I just did with this was, um, I knew I wanted to start, this is about uh, donors to political campaigns, big donors. And um, I was interviewing this guy who's an expert on donors, and it was a piece about a mystery donor that nobody really knew about. And so I had this idea that I would, I would sort of go down the list and start to throw out names and have him respond, you know him, you know him, you know him, you know him. And so I'm just writing in my head, and he was on the phone from DC. So I was just writing in my head the way this was go, like before I do the interview. And um, basically the interview, I think I ended up re-scripting it, but basically it was the same as I conceived, which was, you know, if you go down a list of, of millionaire donors, you know, pretty much their names you know. And you hear me going, Bob? He's like, you know, Bob Sosa? Oh yeah, I know that guy. This guy? You know, but I, I pictured the way the interaction was gonna go in my head and then sort of made it happen on the phone so that we're having a, a thing. So the action, like all of this, all of these tricks we've done so far, they're all about getting action and momentum into the piece. It's, it's a conversational action, but it's, it's better than nothing, you know? It's just making something happen. Um, yeah. When have you picked a structure that didn't work and you had to figure out something new rapidly? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it probably happens all the time. I'm constantly revising in my head. Um, the three-part structure tends to work out pretty well. I mean, it's just a very basic structure. Um, the key being that there's like, you make a, a firm transition. You don't just bleed in from one to the other. You're like here, here, here. Um, but no, I'm constantly rethinking all of this stuff and reformulating my head. That didn't work. Oh, that's not going to work. Oh, that joke is terrible. It's never going to get on the air. Um, back and forth and back and forth. And, and in fact, like both of these questions sort of relate to the next, the next little thing that I just want to talk about. We can take some more questions, which is when you have the structure, you, you, have, you have to start fantasizing about the tape. Like you have to think what would, what's the greatest thing that could happen to me when I am out on this story, when I'm doing this sort of thing. What is the cut that I want? And then you sort of backwards engineer into asking the right questions to get it. And you can be, I mean, you can be very specific in your head. And I do this with my editors all the time. I just think like, what, what would be awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, I'm gonna play a little cut because it was my, one of my favorite cuts of all time, which was um, I was doing something on the economics of lunchrooms and the disappearance of the lunch lady. And um, my editor at the time 
we were talking about this and we were just joking back and forth. This is the way it starts, just the jokes. It's like, oh, you know, you gotta totally get the lunch lady going, ah, oh, do you want some of the, the gravy? And I'm like, no, 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 no. You gotta get the kids being like, oh, I don't like that. Like, that's terrible. And we're going back and forth. Before I go out, you're just sort of saying like, what, what is the kind of vibe you want? What is the, what is the scene? What is the sort of thing? And because I knew what I wanted, we decided, oh, you gotta just get someone just listing off all the things on the lunch line. Like you wanna like visually move yourself through the lunch line. But because I've done this fantasy, I know that that's what I need. So when 12.15 comes along, I am standing in line and I'm walking one child through the next, through this line saying, just list off all the things you see. I, like, I could hear it in my head what I wanted and um, three or four people later, I got it. And so, it was, and so I ended up putting it in the intro. This is John Itzty introducing it. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm John Itzty. Feeling hungry? Here's what's for lunch at Roosevelt High School in Seattle. Ooh, we got some really good food right here. We got a really nice bread and some carrot and some white thing right here. I don't know what it is. And we got some apple. We got some cookies. What is this, man? Turkey what? Oh, this is some turkey justice chini, whatever that is, you know? What Yetis Casa is trying to describe is turkey tetrazzini. Now, now part of, sometimes when you do this, you kind of feel magical, and you have to talk yourself out of the fact that you just created that, because you didn't create that. Kind of. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know who she was. I didn't tell her what to say. I just asked the question like we ask all the time, right? Walk through the line, tell me what it is you see. But I knew, I was just like, nope, that's not it, that's not it, that's I'm looking for the right kind of person, I'm looking for the right kind of person. And so, in some sense it's planned. What is not planned, however, is the last interchange about Turkey Tetrazzini, because what she didn't know was, I now, I had at this point knew everything there was to know about Turkey Tetrazzini, because I had followed the making of that Turkey Tetrazzini from the very beginning. So it was like setting up, it was setting up the opening of the piece. Peel back the layers of turkey tetrazzini before, let's peel back the layers of turkey tetrazzini before it was slopped onto the tray on a Thursday. That's just nasty, that's just gross. Before it was separated and packed for distribution on Wednesday. This is what it looks like. It's turkey and noodles. Before a tiny woman with arms of steel mixed in the cheese on Tuesday. It was Monday, and 874 pounds of turkey stood thawing in the middle of the Roosevelt kitchen. So um, that's where it's just lucky. Like, she, she has this whole interchange about turkey tetrazzini, and I was like, I got tape for that, you know? <laughs> if, she had, if it had been spaghetti, um, I would have been in trouble. Um, so this is just, this is the kind of thing that, that I try and do with every story. Um, and at Planet Money, we luckily have a great team together, so we will do this with each other. And it's funny if someone walked in because it sometimes seems like we're doing improv before someone goes out on a story. We had one of our producers just did something on uh, on the helium shortage, right? And so it's back and forth. It's like you know, and we're starting to play roles. Oh no, you got You got to go to a birthday party. Oh, of course, you know, birthday party of the kids. Like you know, oh, we, we, should we pop the balloon? You know, and the, the sort of thing. And then I'm like, yeah, but you know, you got to go. You gotta go when they buy the tank of helium, right? Like that's what you want, right? Oh, you know, oh, this is really expensive. You know, and so we start to play the characters in our head. And and you know, I said to her, oh, oh, you really gotta get, you really gotta get the sound of when they blow up the balloon. 
and then ask her, how much would the helium cost in that balloon? Because we can picture, right, what a balloon's worth of helium is. And so she's, she's prepped for it. She knows what to look for. And in fact, it turned out better than we thought. So she goes, she gets the sound, blows up the balloon, and then you hear the balloon go, hear the go away. And the woman goes, that's a dollar worth of helium. Just go off there. Like, there you go. Like, you can, like, that, that gives you a visceral feeling for, for what it is that happens. So we do, this, we do this all the time. We're working on a story right now um, about Gangnam Style and Korean pop. And, and Zoe Chase and I are going back and forth. Like, oh, we got to get teenagers outside to sing Whoopum Gangnam Style. And then they don't know the words, the rest of it. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. We should bring karaoke version of it so we have the music and make them sing along with it. You know? And so will this ever happen? Probably not. Like, you know, you come up with all these ideas, but it starts you thinking about what to look for when you go out on a story. Um, the last thing I wanted to play, and then we can take some more questions, is, is a piece I did for This American Life. And I only include it here because it was probably one of the quickest turnarounds ever for This American Life. Uh, this was for the This Week show. Ira Glass mentioned it. Um, I covered the presidential debate, Republican presidential debate, on a Thursday night, uh, edited with Ira and Julie the next morning at 10 a.m., and it was on the show that day. So really quick turnaround for them. And I want to place because I realized, uh, working with Julie Schneider, that she was doing the exact same thing that I was doing in my career. You know, this fantasy stuff with the tape and the structure and all of that, but just with a completely different set of targets, right? Like, the stuff I'm, I'm interested in for a deadline story is action, humor, uh, reaction, uh, just a sense of momentum, a sense of fun, a sense of propelling yourself through the story. Because this can be dull. You know, This American Life is interested in, in character and motivation and reflection um, and motion. You know, it's, those are the things that they're looking for. But in a deadline story, they do the exact same thing that I do, which is to think about structure, to fantasize about the tape. So I pitch, OK, uh, presidential debate, Thursday night. Julie says, the editor, I don't care about debates. She goes, the problem with debates is that there's no, there's no stakes. Like everyone goes in, and they do their debate, and maybe somebody won, and maybe somebody didn't. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't care. Like nobody cares. Nobody cares. So, and I was like, yeah, but it's just fun. We can go, we can get all this. You know, I'm, I'm laying out my normal story, right? You know, we get this, these people and these people, it's funny and back and forth. She's like, no, nah, no. Nah. What I need is, I, and she starts to imagine it. What if you had a presidential candidate who said, no, it really matters. Like, no, I really have to do well tonight, you know? So, and I'm like, no, Julie, they never say that. That's why they're good politicians, right? They would never, ever, ever say that. But I thought, okay, I will look around. And I call a friend of mine, um, Kathy Lohr, in Atlanta. And, and she says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go interview this guy, um, Herman Cain. He's running for, running for president. Um, I said, oh, can you just ask him, does he, does he care about this debate tonight? Uh, not tonight. This was, uh, this was earlier, earlier in the week. And, so, and this is what Herman Cain said. I think that this first debate could potentially move me to what they call uh, top tier, okay? There's still a lot of people who don't know who Herman Cain is. So my goal 
after that first debate is for people to be going, who is this guy? Herman Cain is the pizza man. He was the CEO of Godfather's Pizza. Um, and I play this for Julie, and she's like, yes, go to him. He, he is your character, because he actually, he actually cares. So once again, this is a deadline story. So it's Thursday. I book the, the debates on Thursday night. I book uh, an early morning flight out, um, get there, arrange an interview before the debate with Herman Cain. And, and Julie was exactly as I've discussed with you're writing, the, you're writing the piece in your head, right, as you go along. She's, like, she's going back and forth like, okay, we, we found out as we're doing this, do the interview with Herman Cain, he had um, his first taste of politics was he was at a, a town hall meeting with President Clinton. It was televised. And they had this, this interaction together. And, and Julie was very much like, okay, you got to walk him through it. you got to walk him through this interaction with Clinton. And you got do not leave there until he tells you how it felt to interact. And once again, I'm like, Julie, like we have 12 minutes. You know, you, you don't get a lot of time with these guys. Like, she's like, no, like you need this point. That's what's going to make this, you know, a This American Life story with just a very quick turnaround. And so once again, I could picture exactly what it is I needed. I had one objective with this guy. And, um, and you can hear, like amazingly enough, he delivered. Kane was picked for the audience because he ran Godfathers. I remember standing up and that's when they came to me. Mr. President, my question is quite simply, if I'm forced to do this, what will I tell those people whose jobs I will have to eliminate? Well, let's ask, uh, let's, let's talk a minute about what you would have to do. If you could design a training program for participating in a presidential debate, this is what it would look like. Tussling for eight minutes back and forth with Bill Clinton. What followed was perhaps the most complicated mathematical discussion that's ever been broadcast on primetime. Kane and Clinton were arguing payroll numbers, profit percentages. And the whole time, Kane could feel these TV cameras. So I knew that millions of people would be watching me for the very first time in my life. That was probably the most nervous I had ever been. Okay, first of all, Mr. President, with all due respect, your calculation on what the impact would do, uh, quite honestly, is incorrect. After a few more minutes of this, President Clinton was ready to move on. Let me ask you a favor. Would you send to me personally your calculations? Even 17 years later, this moment has never faded for Kane. The most animated he gets in our interview is when he talks about the morning after Clinton. His wife came to him while he was in the shower. Doom, 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 doom. Herman, you on CNN and every channel. I said, what did I do? I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> I came out and it was the lead story. Ted Koppel that night summarized it. Last night in Omaha, Nebraska, the pizza man from Omaha stomped President Clinton concerning his health care plan. I was shocked. Um, the the take-home of this, other than the fact that he turned out to be a really creepy guy, uh, Herman Cain, um, so you hear this part, and then, and then, at the end of the piece, we go to the actual debate. But now, like, you actually care about the debate. Like, whatever you think about Herman Cain's politics, like, the guy has laid it on the line. Like, this is his moment. And so, and then the rest of the piece, you know, you go through, he fails, he stumbles, he goes, he's doing better, he's doing better, and the people think he won. Doesn't really matter whether he won or not. It's just, it's just like we talked about in terms of the structure, right? It's a guy 
who has this desperate need and he faces these obstacles and he figures out, like, what am I going to do? Like, can he do it? Um, and so once again, total quick turnaround piece, just a totally different set of structures. And it was really, it really opened my eyes because it said, like, you can go to things like a debate, you can go to things like a press conference um, or, or a conference, and you can actually create, you can actually search for the emotional tone as easily as you can search for quips and funny things and transitions and lines. It just depends on what you want for your story. But you have to know what you're going for. You have to have the plan. I think it helps to have the structure. I think it helps to have the fantasy. So any other questions? Do you use the same structure when you do spots? Um, sometimes. I mean, a, spot's really, a spot is really super tight. Um, but yeah, I've used a three-part structure for spots. You know, there are like 12 seconds, 12 seconds for each part, but yeah. To know what you want, I mean, when you're gonna go out there really fast and get something, you must, I mean, sometimes you have to do pre-interviewing or something, or? Yeah, I mean, you're, it, it's, it's a constant process. You're just doing this at the same time. I, I don't wanna make you think that, you know, I sit down a minute after an assignment and I drop the structure and the fantasy tape and, and, it's, and, I, and I write it, and I'm like, now I just gotta fill in the blanks. I mean, it's. It's really, I mean, part of it is I've done this a while. I've been to these, I, you know, I know how these things work, you know? And you, you know that if there's a press conference um, that someone really cares about, they'll get there early, they'll be in the front. If you get there 20 minutes early, you can talk to them. You know, I don't know who it is, but I might have a plan. Like, like you know, okay, this is about neighborhood revitalization. There's probably some neighbors and they're sitting in the front row. Like, it's just a, it's just a hypothesis. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But it's, it's, it's just this constant process of me writing, that's the first cut of tape. Oh, I'm gonna use that cut of tape. And so by the time I get back, I won't say it's, it's easy, but I'm not transcribing. I'm not starting from scratch. I usually will always know the beginning and end by the time I walk back in the office or out of the phoners, if I'm doing a bunch of phoners. I know the beginning and end. Um, I know the general structure. I know what tape I like. And it makes it really easy in a way to do the writing part. If you were doing a, uh, if you were not on deadline, would you still use the same approach? If you had more time to work on a story? No, I mean, I, I would, I mean, I would, you should, like, you, sh you should use that approach. But I, but honestly, it's like if, if I know I have the time, why wouldn't I ask extra questions? You know, why wouldn't I just fish around a little bit and see what's happening and those sort of things? Because sometimes, sometimes random stuff happens. A lot of times, unpredictable stuff happens. And, and you know, I'm, I'm like everyone else. Like, I have the dream that you're going to find that magical thing you didn't know about, and it's completely surprising. Um, it rarely happens. What it just generally means is, is that if I'm not on a deadline, I do extremely long interviews. And maybe it's 5% better, 10% better. And certainly, there's, a you know, there's complicated stories. It's hard to reach people if you've got to travel. I mean, it's great to have the time. But... Personally, I wish, maybe not quite this rigorous, but I wish I could be rigorous about my longer stories in the same way. Feel that same sense of urgency, right? That same sense of like being a hunter on the hunt. Like this is it, like this is the moment. And um, because sometimes I will go back to those very long interviews and I'll hear the cut and I'll hear me be lazy about it. Like whatever, it wasn't perfect or I just ignore it. Because I'm not, I don't have that same, that same edge, whereas if I'm in the field on a deadline, I mean, you can hear, I pounce. Like, I hear it, and I'm like, the moment is happening. And so the microphone moves back to me, I ask, like, we're on the radio in that moment. And um, 
I would love to capture that more. But I'm sorry, in the back. When you're in the field, uh, do you leave your recorder on the whole time, or are you restrictive in recording so that you have less to log when you get back to the computer? Oh, that's interesting. I, I do generally record the whole time, but you know, since it's digital files, um, I just click through them. I don't really need them. Um, what I found that sometimes if I'm a real tight deadline, this is how I limit myself. I will, I will write on my hand. I mean, I have a reporter's notebook, but there's too many pages in it. So I will write the cuts that I want on my hand because, you know, what, what can you fit there, seven or eight? Like, it has to be really special to go on the hand. And, and, um, and that way, you know, because you're, you're, you're you know, I am, I'm actually listening back to tapes sometimes in the field. Like, I'm doing, like, was that cut as good as I thought it was? Yes, it, you know, yes, it was. I write down the time. It's already in the story before I've gone to the next interview. Like it's, it's, it, it is, t I mean, it is tough to do. It's something that took me a long time to get into this mindset. But, you know, it's really, it's really exciting in a way, so. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess not a specific question, but can you talk a little bit about how you've trained your brain to write fast, like the literal prose in narration? But I mean, the it takes me, you know, an hour to hone something down until it actually sounds simple. So, I'm sorry, when you say you wrote it in the subway, I'm just curious, like, what are, what are your mental fallbacks? Like, with regret? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a problem. When you're doing something really quickly, um, I probably rely more on cliche than I normally would. Um, you know, I try and write with short sen sentences, but they're not as good. Yeah, you just, I mean, you don't, you don't have the time. I wish there was a secret to this. Um, sometimes there, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's a little bit more stream of consciousness because I already have, you know, I already have the structure, I already know where I'm going. And so it's not as tight as I would like. But, you know, the one thing going for you is that it tends to, these tend to be things that don't require a lot of explanation. I mean, sometimes they do in breaking news, but, but people can generally follow along with you. Um, and the other thing I try and do is, is to remember sort of quote myself in a way, if that makes sense. So sometimes I will be explaining to the next person I'm interviewing or on the phone, like, oh, I got the person. Oh, what kind of story are you doing? Well, I'm doing the story like this sort of thing. And I'm also mentally going, hey, that's a good quote. You know, like, like I'm, I'm, I'm listening for my own narration, if that makes sense. There was, um, there was a, a moment, uh, there, was, <laughs> there was a moment uh, after I did a very quick turnaround on a, a, a bunch of mob arrests. And, and my boss was in town, uh, I think it was Ellen Weiss at the time, and she was, um, she was sitting in the conference room, they were having a meeting, and I'm like, oh, I pop in, I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I can't make it, like, I'm, I, I'm on tight deadline for ATC, and I said, but you have got to see this thing, and I plopped down all the indictments, I'm like, these are the craziest indictments in the world, like, the, the mob thing, and like, look at this, like, it's, it's, it's Joey Walnuts and, and, and Herman Peanuts, and it's like all these mob names. <laughs> And, and I'm, I'm throwing those things out, and then, and then uh, when I went in to write it, I'm like, oh, that's actually From NPR good. News. It's alone run hundreds of pages. Here, let me get them right here. When stacked up, they are four inches thick. The handy color-coded chart of the seven crime families has more players than the NCAA tournament. There's no time to read the 127 names of the indicted, but I can read some of their nicknames to give you the flavor. They got Whiny, Tony Bagels, they got Jack the Whack, Little John. The FBI picked up Uncle Danny, 
marbles, skinny, Johnny Pizza. If you had a meeting scheduled today with Junior Lollipops, Jimmy Gooch, or Baby Fat Larry, hate to break it to you, but they're probably speaking with their lawyers. You ever understand? So, like, I just shamefully stole from my own jokes. I'm like, this is going over well. I'm in a meeting. I'm making these jokes. Everyone's like, yeah, that's funny. Like, they're, they're laughing. They're all saying, yeah, that's funny. And so, and so I go back to my desk, and I went, I'm just going to write it. I'm just going to do it just like that. And then afterwards, uh, my boss did come to me and go, would that like, I'm like, yeah, it was prep. That was just, it was just a focus group testing, so. <laughs> Do you have suggestions for endings for like that last sentence you say after the nice cut, but you have to say it before you suck out? No. <laughs> no. No. I was hoping no one noticed. I stuck with the beginning stuff. I mean, everyone has the thing that's really tough. I find endings really tough, mostly because I have no self-control. Um, people who write great endings are the ones who have that ending and they save it. And they, you know, they keep it safe and they, they bring it out and you're like, ah, oh, it's so lovely. But I just, like, I, maybe because I'm just very much start at the beginning, right to the end. You know, I have the structure. I kind of know where I'm going. But I, I don't think, I don't think I have the world's strongest endings. You know, I try and keep the tape pretty close to the end. Um, you know, try and come up with something clever, you know, save it for that. But, but yeah, I'll have to go to another session on endings. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just getting you started. You know what? You, you, know what, you know how, since this is a deadline session, you know how you end your piece? When your editor says, we need to do it now or they're going to change around the show. Like, okay. <laughs> like, that's, you're ended. Yeah. <laughs> you stop. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, it's it's a huge problem, and and many of the good editors will solve this by just looking at your script and saying, "All right, take away the host intro, give them your first, give them your first few lines, the ones you save for yourself." It's it's really hard. I mean, it's not that I'm not a giving person, but they have. <laughs> They do, but they have their styles, and um, you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a gift that you're gonna dismantle and rebuild it the way you want to build it. Uh, it is the right thing to do, um, and and it's funny. It's just like I think the best, I think the best thing to do about that is to sort of know your host's style. So now, like Steve Inskeep has a very distinctive style, and I actually get kind of, I get kind of excited to like put on Steve Inskeep for a moment, you know? It's like, you know, speaking of shrubs, there's a tree blight. And you're like, hey, hey what if, that was, come on. He's got much better lines than that. Um, but he, but you just try and picture the voice and then it becomes kind of a fun thing to see if it made it through, did it get filtered out, did he completely change it, or did you, did you nail it, you know? We probably have time for one more question. Thank you. Can you talk about how you would apply these structures to longer form stories with bunches of scenes? And just, I know the urgency isn't there, but just how you would do that. How is structured longer? Yeah, like with more scenes and just more places and more people. More complicated. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously for Planet Money, we, um, we have a podcast which is around 20 minutes long, and then we do stories for the radio. So I'm really, and one of the reasons I went to work for them is this figuring out how to do longer stuff. And, and you, have to, you have to not move at the same pace you move at a shorter story. You just can't, it's just, it's, it's exhausting. And so, you know, this is, we don't have a, a lot of time to talk about it, but I've learned that there's very Planet Money styles about being very clear 
about what is going to happen in this piece and what the questions are and when they're answered and making very clear transitions and just, and just pacing it in the right way so that basically at three and a half minutes, four minutes, as long as I'm providing fun and momentum, you're not going to question a whole hell of a lot. It's pretty short, right? I don't need to tell you, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. You don't have to make promises because you're just you're delivering very quickly. And so in a longer piece, there's a lot of things that there are people much better than I am. I think, I think people need to know what this experience is going to be like because it's, it's a long haul. You want something exciting, but you can't just push them along in momentum. So you got to think more about suspense and drama and and paying off like setting up little suspense and then paying off and then setting up another one of really being very clear people planet money much better than i am at this of just like saying i am going to do this i'm going to answer this question by going here and by doing this and i've been surprised how how well it can work to just straight out tell someone what what you're going to do and how you're going to get the answer and like I, I would have once upon a time thought that was kind of kludgy, right? You know, no, you got you to be smooth about it. But if, but if delivered in the right way, just saying this is what we're going to do and there's a, there's a huge payoff because um, we're going to understand this thing. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm struggling with now. Um, it's, it's always something, I guess. All right, thanks, everybody. <laughs>